0: rained down on Israel last weekend following IDF counterterrorism operations against Iran-backed Islamic Jihad. The bipartisan outcry from Capitol Hill? We stand with Israel.
1: Why are Americans generally supportive of Israel, and will we see that support continue? Joining us today, Walter Russell Mead, Wall Street Journal columnist, professor of national security, grand strategy, and author of a brand new book, The Ark of a Covenant.
0: Don't push pause, you're listening to Jewish Insider's limited liability podcast. Welcome back to Jewish Insiders Limited Liability Podcast. I'm Rich Goldberg.
1: And I'm Jared Bernstein.
0: Jared, uh, obviously, thoughts and prayers uh, were with uh, our friends, uh, family, colleagues uh, in Israel uh, this past weekend uh, as uh, a major uh, escalation we had not seen uh, since last year's Gaza war. Uh, this time, different target, different terrorist uh, group involved Palestinian Islamic Jihad backed by the Islamic Republic of Iran, some major ongoing operations, Uh, within the West Bank over the last several weeks that the Israelis uh, have been engaged in, rooting out terror cells, uh, potentially Iranian and terror plans to try to take down the PA, undermine it in the West Bank, expand the power source of terrorist uh, organizations beyond Gaza. Uh, Israel uh, hitting back in response uh, to additional terror plots after a major arrest was made in the West Bank. Uh, and uh, thankfully uh, did not spiral out of control uh, in the way that uh, we saw uh, last year uh, with 11 days of fighting with Hamas. Uh, But uh, it seems early in the after action still, uh, but from what we can tell, major operational success uh, by the Israelis, major blow to Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and a lot of questions of what exactly the Iranians are up to working uh, with this terror group.
1: And one other thing I would note, you saw in the way that the American domestic political class reacted very differently than last year's uh, fight in Gaza. Not a lot of criticism of Israel, Um, you know, by and large, even sort of left wing progressives. Uh, assented to the idea that Israel had to defend itself here um, and I think that's something that you saw change from last year I don't know uh, if it's if it's circumstantial or if it if it shows that you know progressives have got the message that this is not should not be their cause to to really pile on on
0: uh, listen I, I think it's a great question it's one that's going to be analyzed significantly I've been thinking about it as well it, comparing it this happened over. Sort of a long weekend, you know, from Friday into Sunday night. Uh, A lot of the press corps went home, uh, certainly in D.C. There's a lot going on right now that did not exist last year at this time. Uh, The war in Ukraine, I think, uh, is taking up an enormous amount of oxygen. We just had the Taiwan visit uh, of the Speaker of the House and and the saber rattling going on there. Uh, You have Iran talks uh, in Vienna, which we'll touch on in just a second, uh, at the same time. So uh, I think a huge amount uh, in the system already uh, for, for, for people. Uh, there's voting going on in the Senate, and, and some of the major domestic focus is on reconciliation and on domestic priorities at the moment, not uh, capable to sort of uh, you know, spin up an entire war room operation on foreign policy at the moment where you're focused on your grassroots uh, effort on the domestic priority in front of you. Um, for, for Democrats uh, and certainly for progressives. Uh, and then I think there's the enemy involved here, right? I think Palestinian Islamic Jihad is not Hamas. Clearly, Hamas has a communications apparatus that is very sophisticated and far more sophisticated uh, than, than PIJ. Uh, that's something I think we should look at and sort of understand how Hamas does communications, uh, who their allies are in, in the media sphere. Um, that, that could be something to look at. Last thing I will say is, you saw last conflict that there was a choreography being driven by Hamas, right, in advance, with a lot of storylines, established narratives, you know, zoning conflicts, rioting uh, at the Temple Mount, etc. And there was already momentum, and, and Israel was sort of on defense. In this case, the Israelis were really on the offensive quietly for several weeks, uh, doing counterterrorism operations below the radar, and then took the initiative— against Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and therefore were able to establish their own narrative quickly. I think that's also a big piece of this.
1: I mean, yeah. What does what Sun Tzu uh, t- say that you want to have the conflict with the enemy at the time and place of your choosing? And I think, you know, a large part of that is Israel had the conflict here at the time and place of their choosing. Uh, with you know, even if there were rockets and there were fire being traded on both, you know, in both directions, they had the the initial conflict, the time and place of their choosing.
0: Iran talks. I want to briefly touch on it as well. Uh, quite the busy weekend, Jared. Uh, not just uh, this conflict uh, in Gaza with Palestinian with Jihad uh, and in Israel, but uh, Iran talks resuming in Vienna. Uh, They've broken uh, to go back to capitals and discuss what's on the table there. It appears to be basically the deal that was on the table in March, and I think our listeners know my views on that. Uh, The one hiccup here is Iran is demanding that the IAEA, the UN's nuclear watchdog, shut down its probe into undeclared nuclear sites, undeclared nuclear material and activities that have all sort of stemmed from the breadcrumbs left by the nuclear archive that was discovered in 2018, with at least four sites discovered, three of those sites uh, testing positive for uranium. There's a massive investigation here by the IAEA with many unanswered questions uh, from the Iranians. They want this to go away because it goes to their secret work and their future plans, and they don't want to have full declaration uh, of, of what they're actually working on, uh, and this is now a question mark of how would this be handled? There's rumor mills that the Biden administration, the Europeans, say, well, "Well, we'll ask the IAEA to try to complete their probe and get you know answers from from the Iranians by a certain date. And if we get answers, then we can close the probe. And if we don't get answers, we can't go forward. And the entire deal will rest on this question." which means enormous political pressure coming onto the UN nuclear watchdog to close the probe if you're for the deal. Uh, So I I don't like this at all, uh, in my view. Uh, If Iran is hiding things, it goes to the core of of the entirety of whether or not you can do a nuclear deal, whether you can lift sanctions. This probe must be completed, and it must be completed in a professional manner that demands Iran full accounting of its past and present nuclear activities. If you can't get that, it is crazy to me to do any nuclear deal.
1: So in that vein, we're about to go to school here, Rich, right? uh, We are. We're we're about to go to school with one of the great scholars of the U.S.-Israel relationship, uh, and really somebody who spends a lot of time thinking about grand strategy, not just tactics, but what are we looking at over the 50 year time horizon, the 75 year time horizon. Uh, and so I'm really excited for our guest today.
0: And and I would say uh, credentials uh, and a proven track record of dishing it out uh, to all sides. Uh, Yeah, I have a a
1: feeling neither of us are going to be completely happy with the way he uh, criticizes our respectful administrations that we worked in. So I guess. uh,
0: Well, well, let's let's bring him on. Walter Russell Mead, a distinguished fellow in strategy and statesmanship at the Hudson Institute, professor of foreign affairs and humanities at Bard College and the Global View columnist at the Wall Street Journal. You probably know him from there, Uh, formerly the Henry Kissinger. Senior Fellow for U.S. Foreign Policy at the Council on Foreign Relations. Walter is the author of several books, his latest that we'll be talking about, The Ark of a Covenant, the United States, Israel, and the Fate of the Jewish People. He is a native of South Carolina, an honors graduate of Groton and Yale's, a founding board member of New America, and serves on the board of Freedom House. Walter Russell Mead, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. There are a lot of books on the U.S.'s relationship, uh, as you note at the beginning of your own book at the outset. Uh, One that comes to mind when I originally heard about this book was former Israeli ambassador Michael Oren's uh, famous book on the historical roots of the relationship in the U.S., power, faith, and fantasy. But your opening chapter speaks to this and says, you know, um, there have been a lot of takes on this. Uh, This is not advocacy, uh, this is not uh, to, to bias in any way. This is a historical piece. I'd love for you to explain to our listeners why this book, why now in your mind?
2: I mean, for, in terms of my writing it, it was uh, I, I felt that there were a lot of questions in the relationship that I didn't fully understand. And that's usually, for me, the signal that it's time to write a book is when I'm, I'm curious about something and, and what I'm looking at doesn't satisfy me. But as, why, as far as why readers might think we, we needed another book, one thing I'd say is if we look at the state of the discussion of the of the U.S.-Israel relationship today, it's full of all kinds of, of myths and inaccuracies. Um, you know, there's this idea that somehow Israel, the U.S. and Israel have always been allies, and that Israel in some ways, maybe its existence depends on a strong alliance with the United States. But you look at the history and the Israeli, in the years when Israel really needed an ally the most in the 1950s, the United States wasn't there. Israel still managed to survive and even to flourish. Uh, Then I think you look at American Middle East policy overall and it's been pretty unsuccessful for quite a while. I would say in in the 21st century, under both Republican and Democratic presidents, Overall, the United States has not been very effective in its Middle East policy, and yet we've been consumed by debate. Finally, I'd say, look at the Middle East peace process, Uh, the uh, peace negotiations between Israelis and Palestinians. I don't think in the history of the United States you've seen this much effort over this many years by presidents of so many different political persuasions and ideologies that has yielded so little. Why did we get so invested in the peace process and why do we get so little peace out of it? Those kinds of questions, it seems to me, just haven't been answered.
0: And, and you mentioned those are questions that were driving you. Are, are there any other questions that you had? So you, you said you were dissatisfied, you know, r- right now. You, you, you had questions that you weren't getting answers to that you wanted to break into. Were those the, the, the driving questions for you? Or were there other ones on your mind?
2: Well, you know, there was also this sort of notion um, that somehow pro-Israel, the United States is pro-Israel, not because the national interest is leading us to that, but because some kind of lobby. Um, some people would say Jews, some people would throw in the evangelicals, white evangelicals, that somehow this group of people is the source of American support for Israel. And that furthermore, many of the people who, many of these people who advocate American support for Israel don't do so because they're thinking about American interests, but because for some reason they're privileging Israeli interests. And that just struck me as a very dangerous set of ideas. It, um, without saying that people who, who, um, propose these these ideas are necessarily anti-Semitic. I'm not trying to get into people's psychologies, as Queen Elizabeth I said, I will not make windows into men's souls. Um, nevertheless, these arguments often derive from sort of, you know, deep anti-Semitic tropes that are embedded in Western culture. And it's a little bit alarming to see these things coming back.
1: So, while well, they're Perfect segue to my next question. Your early chapters center on views of Zionism, both in the old country and how it's emerged within the, the broader context of Americanism. And in America, we're seeing a huge surge in anti Semitism. As a historian, how do you view the role of anti Semitism within the con- that context of American history? And are we seeing a change in that nature today?
2: Well, it's there are two things I think that are that are important to remember about anti-Semitism in American history. The first is that there is a you know that America the United States comes out of Western Christian culture and there's a certain anti-Semitism anti-Semitic um, mold to a lot of that culture, and we've inherited it. And so never in America's history has, has the United States had a sort of total, exemption from the curse of anti-Semitism. But at the same time, pretty consistently, America has been less anti-Semitic than many European countries. Anti-Semitism, for all its virulence, has not had quite the same impact here that it's had in some other places. That said, it's also true that anti-Semitism in America has risen and fallen in waves. That probably the peak in American history of anti-Semitism was in the 1930s and 40s. Another peak would have been in sort of the 1880s and 90s. um, And to some degree, what we're seeing now is a kind of a a rise, though not yet, I think, to those levels. My own sense of of that is that it's when people have lost faith in the promise of America, they often sort of turn to um, conspiracy theories to some idea, you know, who were the, the puppet masters controlling our fate? Why are things not going the way we'd like them to go? And at these moments of American self-doubt, and when, when this basic ideas of American life are, are kind of being contested more vigorously than usual, that's when anti-Semitism, both on the left and on the right, tends to reappear.
1: And, you know, I'm glad you gave the both left and right uh, qualifier at the end there, because I'm sure what I heard in your last statement was QAnon and the people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th. And I'm sure what Richard was uh, people who are for conditioning aid to Israel and conflating, uh, you know. You know, advocating for BDS and talking about the the dark money of the Israel lobby uh, and some of these Democratic primaries we've seen. So I'm I'm glad that you level set for both of us because both Rich and I have a tendency to kind of jump on that with our own our own political biases and
2: agenda. So I'm glad somebody's here to referee. Well,
0: it's it's also in his book to be fair. Yeah, it's, yeah. Especially in his last chapter, he get, dishes it out both both ways.
2: Well, I, I call him as I see him, and and I'm sorry to say that on on the far left and the far le- right today you see this very dangerous virus reproducing.
0: I, I want to back up just a second, Walter, and, and ask you a question. It, it's related. It, it's this thread of American history. It's also this gap you, you were pushing back on, sort of what is the real reason historically the U.S. has supported Israel? Why is it in the national interest? Uh, a lot of times we rely on I don't want to call them platitudes because I personally believe in a lot of people believe in it. it. And it would say, well, we have shared values. We have shared values, whether we go back to Christian Zionism and Judeo-Christian shared values and quoting George Washington, quoting you know, Abraham Lincoln, whoever it is, right? Various pastors. Shared values doesn't seem like enough. Um, to, as an excuse, as, as a justification for, in difficult situations, why that is the national interest. Where, where do you see values and national interests converging or diverging in particular for the U.S.'s relationship?
2: You know, it's an interesting question uh, because it is clear that at the time that the, quote, values case for Israel would have been the strongest, which would have been, say, um, you know, 1948 to 1967, when Israel was a, was a poor country surrounded by uh, enemies full of refugees, um, the United States was actually much less supportive of Israel than it would become later. So as I say in the book, Israel didn't become strong because it had an American alliance. It gained an American alliance because it had grown strong. So there is clearly an element of realism in the relationship. And I think we, you know, um, and, and in some ways, the book could operate as a kind of defense of the power of realist calculations in American uh, foreign policy. But at the same time, it is also true that um, there has been a tremendous popular support often stronger among non-Jews in America than among Jews, for the idea of a Jewish state in the lands of the Bible as signifying a kind of, you know, a a hope for humanity as a whole and also as as a vindication of American principles.
1: In the book, you explain that this popular narrative that we've all sort of been told as kids about Eddie Jacobson lobbying Truman to recognize Israel is wrong. What's the real story?
0: And it yeah. sort of relates to what your point you're just making yeah, there yeah. about, you know, that, there is, yeah, like, we're coming out of World War II, or coming out of the Holocaust. There's the question of, of a Jewish state, you know, on the table here. And you're right, shared values is, is diminished here. What 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 really went on there behind the scenes?
2: Yeah, well, it, it's a, it is a fascinating story. And honestly, when I started writing the book, I didn't expect that, you know, I was going to sort of, take a different angle on this story. I pretty much accepted what people said. And it's interesting, by the way, that both anti-Semites and many American Jews agree about the Eddie Jacobson story and the role of Zionist lobbying in Truman policy. You know, for, for some in the American Jewish community, this is how we, the American Jews, personified by plucky little Eddie Jacobson, you know, a small businessman from out of the Bundex comes forward and saves Israel, like Queen Esther, saves the right. Jewish people. Right, exactly. Uh, and that's a kind of a, you know, that's, that's almost a, a, you know, it's an important myth for the Jewish community. It's equally talismanic for anti-Semites in the sense that here we see clear evidence That, you know, when all the statesmen, George Kennan, George Marshall, all the really thoughtful, wise men in the State Department said, we should have nothing to do with the Jewish state. Those darn Jews came in with their incessant lobbying and forced Harry Truman to do their bidding. So both the kind of anti-Zionist and even anti-Semitic narrative and the American Jewish narrative converge on that point. It was very interesting to me to to look into that a little bit deeper and see, well, wait a minute. Actually, after Eddie Jacobson met with Truman and got Truman to meet with Weizmann, which was the point of Jacobson's intervention, American policy didn't change. That um, there was no visible result of that meeting with Weizmann. In fact, Truman consistently then tried to stop the, the Israelis or the Yeshuv, as we would say, not to be, um, you know, not to anticipate things to, from declaring independence. The last thing the, the leaders of the Jewish community in Palestine did before they declared independence was the cabinet voted to, to disregard, to reject Truman's request that they delay the declaration. So in that sense, Israel started as it meant to go on by rejecting American advice when it involved matters of national security. Um, So this is, you know, what this, but the real kind of complex story of Truman's approach to this takes you back in some ways 50 years before, when before Herzl wrote the uh, Der Judenstaat, And before the formation of an organized modern Zionist movement in in Europe, a group of Americans uh, signed a petition asking President Harrison to use his influence to get the European powers to establish a Jewish homeland in the Ottoman Empire. That petition was signed by John D. Rockefeller, um, by J.P. Morgan, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, so sort of the American Protestant establishment was Zionist before really there was an organized Zionist movement among Jews in Europe.
0: And, and you that, talk about how, how there's dissent in that from the American Jewish establishment, uh, amazingly, this right. disconnect. Morgenthau and others say, no, 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 that's a bad idea. We don't, we don't want that.
2: Exactly. Some of, the, some of the strongest anti-Zionist lobbying came from American Jews. This year, by the way, twenty twenty two is the one hundredth anniversary of the law that enacted support for the Balfour Declaration into American uh, into American law and into policy, bipartisan, almost unanimous in both houses of Congress, and yet many of the most prominent Jews in in the United States vehemently dissented from it. So, the historically the impetus for at least a limited conditional support for the zionist movement in the united states actually does not come from american jews and and eleanor roosevelt
1: has a role to play here right she she uh, as she as she did on many issues even after her, her husband's death played sort of a, a historical cameo i guess would be a good a good way to put it
2: I, I think her role was was greater than a cameo. in fact, if I were advising people in Jerusalem or Tel Aviv about who they should be building statues to, I would suggest that Eleanor Roosevelt might well deserve one uh, because if we really look at what was going on in the Truman administration, um, beginning you know Truman comes to power with the death of Franklin Roosevelt in nineteen forty five and He's got a war on his hands. He's got um, he's, he's beginning to realize that Stalin can't be trusted. But the Democratic Party, um, and especially the liberal pro-New Deal wing of the Democratic Party, which was dominant in the party at that time, believed that Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt's policy, post-war policy, would have been stay as close as possible to the Soviet Union and use the United Nations, make that the center of American foreign policy. I mean, we've just had World War I, a terrible disaster, World War II, an even worse war. It ends in August after nuclear weapons are unleashed for the first time. It seems so transparently clear to these people that if the United Nations doesn't become the most powerful force in international politics. And we don't, we don't move we can't move from international competition to international law. It's only a matter of time before we have World War III, and that'll be even worse. Um, and so the idea of allying with Britain against the Soviet Union is seen as the worst kind of backward thinking. Um, it'll it'll break the United Nations, it'll launch a new war. And yet Truman sees that Stalin actually cannot be trusted, isn't a partner for peace, and the UN is not going to be able to contain the forces that are out there in the post-war world. But his party doesn't believe this, and his hold on his party is weak. Truman was only in office because of Franklin Roosevelt. He had no mandate from, from the party, no following, no real personal reputation. He was widely considered an accidental politician and totally unqualified, a little man. During his administration, his poll numbers would often go down into the 20s. He was considered a dismal failure at the time of his retirement, forced retirement, because he he had to give up a reelection campaign during the Korean War. So how does Truman then bring the liberal wing of the United States, uh, of the Democratic Party along as he shifts from Franklin Roosevelt's policy of cooperation with the Soviets and support for the UN into what really becomes the Cold War. It And the key to this for Truman was really to keep Eleanor Roosevelt on side. She was the symbol of Franklin Roosevelt's program. She was the self-appointed, but widely accepted custodian of the of Franklin Roosevelt's um, true legacy. Um, and so he needed to keep her. How does he keep her? Well, luckily for Truman, in 1947, the British give up their hold on Palestine and throw the problem to the United Nations. And Truman is able to say, ah, Here, Well, I should say for liberals, this was an amazing event because for the hundred years before 1945, the leading cause of war had been these national rivalries, Croats and Serbs, Czechs and uh, Poles and Russians, French and Germans. These territorial disputes, bitter national rivalries had been the, the cause of war after war after war. And so here, the United Nations was being given a chance for the first time to solve one of these problems without war. And the UN goes for partition. Uh, Truman does not, you know, Truman says, fine, I'll follow the UN. I'm going to stick with the UN. He's not so much sticking with Zionism. And when the Zionists lobbyists tried to push Truman farther than this commitment to the U.N., they failed. So in November, in in December 1947, right after the partition uh, resolution, when the Arab countries reject the partition and fighting breaks out in British Palestine between Jews and Arabs, the State Department puts an arms embargo onto um, both sides that has the effect of favoring the Arabs who can still get arms from from the British and so on. But the Zionists are unable to budge Truman on this. Liberals kind of like arms, uh, arms embargoes. Um, So Truman sticks to this idea of the partition plan and the UN. And his final decision to recognize the Israeli independence remains tied to I'm going to you know we're going we're going to follow UN policy on this and this keeps the liberals keeps Eleanor Roosevelt on his side in a in a crucial hour of of, of his campaign her sons had actually formed a dump a dump truman committee um but uh, she was wavering. She, she resigned at one point in disgust from the U.N. delegation uh, over his policies. He talked her back in. He's constantly working with her during this time.
0: And, and she is really uh, motivated on this issue by the refugee question and the humanitarian question, as you write about, and British policy post-Churchill. Um, of really opposing the flow of, of Jews into Palestine, etc. I, I have always had this question in my mind, having read Churchill and the Jews, I'm sure you have, of, of Sir Martin Gilbert uh, and, and some of the original source documents uh, of Churchill's support for Zionism in his early days. If, if Churchill is not thrown out, right, if the Tories don't lose immediately after the war is over, and he is still there in 46, 47, 48 is your chapter, um, you know, British Cyrus instead of American Cyrus? I mean, you know, does this actually ever get thrown at, at Truman to have to make these decisions?
2: You know, I think it's hard to say. I mean, in in in, the, in July of forty-five, when Labor wins the election, um, the Zionists celebrate because even though Churchill was personally seen as sympathetic, the Labor Party was more sympathetic than the Tory party to Zionism uh, and had been the historic friend of Zionism in a way that the Tories had not been. Uh, And what turned Labour's mind, changed Labour's mind that summer, was their sort of realization that given Britain's post-war economic problems, control of the oil in the Arab Middle East was essential to Britain's economic well-being and to maintaining its great power position in the world, and so they began to, and and their fear was not so much specific a specific opposition to a Jewish state, but their feeling that if they failed to stop Jewish immigration and failed to stop the emergence of a Jewish state, this would radicalize Arab opinion, and in a sense, you know, the Arabs would no longer have see any reason to cooperate. With British policy or the British government, and pro-British regimes would fall, and anti-British regimes would take their place. Britain would lose control of the oil. Um, It—I hate to say it—but that's the kind of logic that would have made a lot of sense to Winston Churchill. So, um, and in Britain's and and he was, if anything, a more convinced British imperialist than Labour was he would probably have tried, um, he might have been more agile. He would have understood the importance of this issue in American public opinion. And of course, Truman, as as I say in the book, Truman never actually called for an independent Jewish state. He never, um, you know, that was never part of the fight between the British and the Americans. It was really over sort of a 100,000 visas that Truman had asked the British to give for for displaced Jews to get there. Churchill probably would have tried harder to find a way to give Truman enough so that he could avoid a clash. But um, I think his, also, by the way, the assassination of, of Churchill's friend, Lord Moyne, um, in, I think, what was it? 1944. I'm, I'm, I'm not quite sure. I think uh, also observers have noted that, that Churchill's sympathy for Zionism cooled after that. Lord Moyne had been working on some kind of complex federative scheme that Churchill hoped could sort of reconcile Jewish aspirations with British policy after the war.
1: So, Walter, well, question about um, you know, you go through several modern eras of U.S. policy towards Israel in the book. I'm wondering if you could talk us through or compare and contrast Clinton to Bush to Obama to Trump to Biden. Uh, you go into this into the book in the book, but for our listeners, what's not obvious about how the relationship has evolved over that time?
2: Well, let me see. Um, one th- one thing I, I I would I would say is that. The center of American policy for much of this time was about the peace process and the, the rise and fall of the peace process uh, through these different presidencies and its relationship to broader international and regional issues is one that I think uh, people have not really thought through. Um, and, and I've tried to, to, to throw a little light on that, on that topic. That for um, when Clinton comes into office, he's been, uh, well, he benefits, you know, we have to put our minds back to that early post-Cold War period, the end of history, it was called. And it seemed, you know, the West's goal after after the end of the Cold War was to sort of do globally what Germany was doing locally. That is, West Germany was sort of trans- beginning to transform East Germany and extend Western institutions, values, and so on into the East. We were trying to do that globally. We want. We saw democracy surging in Latin America, in East Asia, obviously in uh, Central Europe, and we thought at the time maybe even in Russia and China. So we wanted to see that happen in the Middle East, and and it seemed that in that. Um, getting a peace agreement, a two-state agreement between Israelis and Palestinians was the way to, again, as the UN had tried to do before, settle peacefully these bitter national disputes, but also put the region on course um, to a kind of liberal democratic evolution. Um, And in the 90s, when U.S. power was enormous and uncontested, um, largely uncontested, that's when we came closest to doing it. Not, I think, because either the Israelis or the Palestinians were were necessarily convinced that um, some of the proposals put forward would would be a permanent solution to their conflict. But because American power at that time was so great, American prestige was so great, that we were able to sort of Push the two sides more closer together. Um, then, in you know, in in the Bush era, after nine one one, in particular, Bush of course is very you know moved away from any kind of peace negotiations uh, when he took office. The Clinton uh, negotiations had collapsed, and Intifada was in full swing. Uh, after nine one one, Bush. Um, Uh, on the one hand, comes much closer to Israel. He sees Israel as as an ally in the global war on terror and an important and a valuable ally uh, with intelligence and other capabilities that the U.S. really needs if it's going to succeed. But he also um, uh, begins, particularly in his second term, to revive this idea that that ending the Israeli-Palestinian dispute Is a way of bringing, uh, you know, reducing tension, of demonstrating the legitimacy and the fairness of American conceptions, uh, promoting the rise of democracy in the Arab world. You know, Bush, um, some of the neoconservatives around Bush and Bush himself seem to have believed that the Arab world could very quickly move toward peace and democracy, that that would mean. that the uh, Israeli Arab dispute might go away; that it was, the, it was the the oppression in Arab countries was one of the root causes of the enmity. So there was this hope that there'd be a democratic Palestinian state, other democracies in the Arab world, and you would see the same kind of flowering in the Middle East that you'd seen in other parts of the world. Um, didn't happen. I think to some degree, as the war in Iraq bogged down, as people um, lost their respect for American power or their admiration or their fear of it, um, he was, American diplomacy became less persuasive. One of the amazing things that strikes me about the Obama administration is that almost nobody thought in 2008 that you could make a bigger mess in the, in the Middle East than the Bush administration had made. You know, the war in Iraq, uh, bitter antagonism toward the United States. Uh, but amazingly, by the time President Obama left office, you know, the, the United States was even less popular in the Middle East than it had been eight years before, and the region was in worse shape. There were more humanitarian controversies, more polarization. And with the general decline in respect for American statesmanship and um, confidence in American power, the peace process just continued to get weaker. The, The Israelis, the Americans are going around saying to both the Israelis and the Palestinians, listen, we're the smart guys. We're the ones who understand how the world works. You with your petty little preoccupations, you have narrow visions. You need to listen to us. We're the ones who understand. Both the Israelis and the Palestinians look at the Americans at this point, and they can't believe that people could be this stupid or narcissistic. They see Libya in flames after the humanitarian intervention. They see the horror in Syria. Um, They see the complete bungling of the response to the Arab Spring, the, the sort of tragic tragicomedy of American policy in Egypt with respect to the Arab Spring. Nobody in the Middle East thinks that the Americans have any clue what they're doing at this point. And naturally enough, the peace process really under Obama is essentially farcical on both sides. Um, Under Trump, interestingly, you get the Abraham Accord, something that Um, American presidents for decades might have really longed to see a reconciliation between Arabs and Jews. But a lot of this, a lot of what's driving the Abraham Accords was certainly not respect for the statesmanship of Jared Kushner or Donald Trump, um, but rather a common sense among Arabs and Israelis that the Americans were becoming so weak and unreliable vis-a-vis Iran that the conservative Arab states and the Israelis needed to stick together, that the, the foundation of the Abraham Accords is not respect for America or a sense of common purpose with America. It's it, The foundation is a fear that the United States is either leaving the Middle East or engage or making a deal over the head of its old allies with Iran, or is just has, has lost its, its compass so that it'll, policy swings widely from Obama to Trump to Biden without ever accomplishing very much. So in, in that sense, the Abraham Accords are part of an adjustment to the failure of American foreign policy uh, or lack of American strategy.
0: Walter, we're we're here at present day now in that sort of arc there, and I want to ask you just a couple of um, modern day analysis questions. Uh, Walter Mead the uh, the Wall Street Journal columnist now. Um, two questions. I think Jared's going to ask you the second one then we'll get to our lightning round. The first is is sort of a big question, um, trying to boil it down and that is, where is America in our grand strategy today in the Middle East under Joe Biden? Uh, the president just went to the Middle East. He went to Israel. He went to Saudi Arabia. Uh, do, do you see him having a grand strategy in his foreign policy, let alone the Middle East in that grand strategy? And for those who are listening or for those who are out there who are in that camp, either on the right or the left, of we do want to get out of the Middle East, whether it's the endless wars chant. Or it's the Asia first camp of, you know, we, we have to focus on the war with China. We have no no business being there anymore. China and Russia seem to have a grand strategy that includes the Middle East, yet we don't seem to, in my view. What is your analysis so far of the Biden administration's strategy in the Middle East? Is it working? Where is it going? How do you rate the president's visit to the region? That's a lot of questions in one question, but, but I'll see where you take it.
2: Well, I guess I'd say that what we're seeing now is... The Biden administration had a grand strategy for the Middle East and for the world at the start, but it hasn't worked, and so now they're trying to figure out what to do next and trying to shift gears. The original strategy was they're going to park Russia, that is, reach some kind of an accommodation with Putin that will keep Russia from causing trouble. They're going to get Iran back into the JCPOA and stabilize the Middle East that way. And then with those two theaters quiet, they're go, they would be able to focus on China, which they saw as the main issue. Um, and I think added to that was a special animus towards Saudi Arabia that's actually been building up in the Democratic Party uh, really since the 1950s. That is, Saudi Arabia... Um, originally, actually, Democrats hated Saudi Arabia in part because it was seen as one of the reasons why Republicans, presumably under the sway of the oil companies, didn't do more to support Israel in the 1950s. It was seen that Saudis with the oil companies were pulling American foreign policy away from the Democratic noble Israelis to um, Arab uh, dictators and so on and, and monarchs and so on and so forth. Then you add to that the impact of the 1970s rise of OPEC, the impact of high oil prices on um, the living standards of average Americans in that decade, tremendous populist dislike of Saudi Arabia. You add to that the number of Saudis that were involved in the 911 attacks the uh, links between the Saudi royal family and the Bush family. And now you've really got the fire burning. And then you add to that um, climate change, green activists believing that fossil fuels, you know, pose an imminent threat to human civilization. And here's Saudi Arabia, the gra- the grand master of fossil fuel production. It's, it's sort of Every possible element of the Democratic Party looks on this with loathing and disdain. Now you throw in the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. And let me say, as an American newspaper columnist, I am against foreign governments uh, attacking American newspaper columnists. And, you know, not a great idea. But nevertheless, it, was, it was a, it's more than a trifecta. It's a quinfecta or something. And so Biden rode that horse in to be anti-Saudi, is to make human rights activists feel good. It's um, uh, Saudi as the opponent of the Iran deal is also good. Close links between Saudis and the Trump family, the Kushners also adding to it. It was you couldn't stay away from it politically. Uh, then, however, once in office, some things happen that you didn't expect. Obviously, one of them being that instead of being parked, Putin invades Ukraine, setting off an energy crisis and inflationary spiral. But also, Iran is clearly not that interested in the JCPOA. Now, as we speak, it's possible, you know, that I've called the JCPOA the Schrödinger's cat of diplomacy, and we still haven't opened the box. There's been a kind of a dead cat smell coming out of that box for a while, but we haven't opened it. The cat may just pop out of there alive one of these days. But in any case, the the regional stabilization that they'd hoped for isn't there. And they need the oil. They need the Saudis to pump. They need help. So we're seeing the Biden administration has moved back to something like a more conventional American policy in the Middle East of the conservative Arab states plus Israel as the kind of foundation of the American regional presence. And we've seen a new appreciation of the importance of oil and fossil fuels in geopolitics, regardless of one's feelings about climate change or or the future. So there's been a change. Uh, it's not clear yet how that's going to work out. Um, you know, the uh, uh, the Saudis and the Israelis are clearly going to press the United States JCPOA or no JCPOA to help them with an Iran that is much more dangerous and better positioned than it was a few years ago. Uh, The the Biden administration is going to want to minimize its commitments in the Middle East for all kinds of reasons, but it may not have as much choice as it would like. So I think it's learned that it has to be engaged if only to try to prevent a deeper engagement.
0: Walter, we're going to transition you to the lightning round. We do for everybody some lighthearted questions uh, from Jared and myself. Uh, I'll start it off. Do you have a favorite Yiddish word or phrase in your vocabulary?
1: And profanity is allowed as long as it's in Yiddish.
0: Well, that that won't help me very much. (laughs) Favorite... (laughs) You can also offer other languages of the region. Hebrew, Uh, Arabic. (laughs) uh, We we, we have made those exceptions in the past as necessary.
2: Man, you should never ask a scholar a quick answer, you know, a quick answer question. (laughs) Uh,
0: Do you have a grand strategy analysis of Yiddish language? No. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Look, (laughs) I do remember I had a friend at one point who was taking, decided she wanted to learn Yiddish. She had... You know family it was once a family language and she tar- started taking the language you know listening to language tapes and what she told me was amazing because you know you take most languages and you know you get like hello how are you how's your friend um you know those kinds of things my she language said her- tape,
0: by the way growing up was uh it was head foot my head my foot my head hurts me. My foot hurts me. That right. was side A. That was side right. A. Right.
2: Well, hers was apparently, so, you know, how's your grandmother? Not so good, I'm afraid. <laughs> and
0: it kind of went on from there. It, it is a complaining language, uh, mostly, with with some other uh, uh, words thrown in. Jared, go ahead.
1: All right. Walter, greatest American president for grand strategy.
2: hmm I'm afraid I'm going to give you the conventional trio there, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, and Franklin Roosevelt, all brilliant in very different ways. Um, All of them understood the world they lived in and were able to achieve a very significant result.
0: Greatest prime minister for Israeli grand strategy.
2: Mm. I have to say the more I read the more I thought Ben-Gurion is an amazing figure. He was somebody who had his eye on the main thing all along. His greatest accomplishment to me was something that no other Middle Eastern leader has yet managed, is he understood that the Jews of Palestine didn't need a resistance movement. They didn't need charisma They needed a state and everything about his political activity was the creation of an Israeli state, not only a state that could hold up the country's independence externally, but could impose the will of the government on society at home. It was brilliant.
1: That's so that's so interesting that it's about picking up the trash and keeping the lights on as much as it is about. Sort of grand pronouncements of movements and things like
2: that, and and right. that's why. It's also it's also about disarming the malicious. right,
1: right, right. Which come right, you can't pick up the trash if you have militias. I think that's fair yes. to say. Um, all right, last uh, question here in the lightning round: most influ- influential Zionist in American history.
2: I would say it's probably William E. Blackstone. He was the um, he was the Christian evangelical. Organizer of the Blackstone Memorial, which was that petition signed by um, uh, J.P. Morgan, John D. Rockefeller, and so on, the the approach in that petition to the question of Zionism would really dominate American politics until the Truman administration, and it was it was the Blackstone program that guided Harry Truman.
0: Walter Russell Mead, you can read him uh, very regularly in the Wall Street Journal and make sure you read his new book, The Ark of a Covenant, the United States, Israel and the Fate of the Jewish People. Thank you so much for joining us on Jewish Insider's Limited Liability Podcast.
1: If you like this show, help us get the word out to other people. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And most importantly, tell your friends because it's the best recommendation we can get.
0: Until next time, this is Limited Liability Podcast.